Welcome back, guys. It's episode 53 of The Passive Hang. It's Fayon here, and I have Jacob Lyons, better known as Crazy Cujo, on the podcast, who is a b-boy who has been breaking since 1992, but who has also run his own dance theatre company, been in the circus, and now enjoys powerlifting. Today's episode is a great chat with a living legend. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back. It's Fayon here. We're at episode 53 and I have Jacob Lyons or better known as probably Crazy Cujo in the b-boying scene. And as I was doing my research, just looking around a little bit more into what you've been doing, what you're about, I see on your profile you've been a break dancer for many years. Um, has it been like 20, 30 years? uh right yeah out there <laughs> it's been 29 years now <laughs> you also seem to have a very strong powerlifting practice um and then when i was googling as well it seemed you ran your own theater or dance company for a number of years and then you've even starred in a lot of famous videos such as like in the in the run dmc it's like that video <laughs> I, I don't also, think you're old enough to know that <laughs> <laughs> hey i know that song so okay. I, I think I, I i might have remembered seeing that video back in weekend tv when they used to play a lot of music videos back in, uh, on the um, weekend tv over here in australia but i was like okay yeah this guy has has been around so really interested yeah. to connect with you and find out a little bit more about, you know, you, your story and um, your practice, but maybe a good place to start is where does your nickname come from? This whole crazy Cujo. Well, where did that start? Oh goodness. Um, I started dancing in high school after just sort of wishing I could, wishing I had a circle of friends that could teach me to dance uh, for many years earlier. I mean, I mean, I I I, I messed around with break dancing in the '80s because everyone did. But I was, you know, six or eight years old uh, at at that time, and uh, no mentor, no one to take it seriously, uh, or to encourage me to take it seriously. So it just sort of lingered for a while. And uh, but throughout, you know, middle school, I always associated uh, dance in particular the, the hip hop dancers of the time, you know, and at this time we're talking like the running man or that, that era of party dances. Um, I associated that with the cool kids and being in middle school, being 12, 13 years old, you know, like you wanted to be one of the cool kids. But I, I wasn't around the right people to be one of the cool kids. Now, uh, uh, this, is, this is very puerile, <laughs> this is very, you know, adolescent, but that's, that's, that, that was my thought process, if you even want to call it that. And uh, in high school, I, I, uh, long story, but I had to switch schools. And when I went from one school to the next, I, I, I thought, oh, okay, well, going to this new place, I'm kind of sort of reinvent myself and I'm gonna buy these really baggy, colorful clothes because I love hip hop music and this is the, the sort of uniform, so to speak, that is associated with hip hop music uh, at this time, which is 1992. Um, and that uniform was called Cross Colors, the very popular clothing brand. Um, primarily amongst African-American kids in the late 80s and early 90s. And I didn't know much about it other than that, you know, I grew up around um, a, a lot of 
you know, I'll just generally call them ethnic minority, but that my my part of Los Angeles that I, I grew up in was called Patrina, and it, a lot of white, black, Mexican um, people. And now I say Mexican specifically, of course, we had other other uh, Latino people there, but it was primarily Mexican, and we were a little bit more uh, blunt about how we referred to the the different races and cultures at this time, they were white, black, or Mexican, or Chinese. <laughs> because this, again, this are, these are people that just were not either ignorant or not sensitive to all of the various races and cultures that, that went beyond those four, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's kind of how I grew up. I'm very blunt when it comes to that. I'm more sensitive now, of course, but, but you know, if, if I refer to the race of the ethnicity that the culture is in, in that way is because I'm kind of thinking back to what things are like at that time. So I was around a lot of black and Latino kids, primarily mm -hmm. Mexican, but not, not entirely. Like one of my best friends was Guatemalan, for example. Um, and uh, so I picked up this clothing because I wanted to be around more of these guys. I want to be one of the cool guys around these kids. I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm this odd white guy that wants to be around or there already is around it, a lot of not white people. I didn't really think like that. Um, but in retrospect, and it was it took many years for me to realize that I was often the only white guy amongst all of my peers. It was very, very common, but it was never anything that I was really conscious of uh, until, you know, a good 10 years or so into it. Looking back, I was like, oh, wow. It was really only me, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I went to this new high school with this clothing on. My first day, I'm walking down the hall alone, got no friends yet, and I see a big group of kids, maybe 10, all wearing the same clothes, walking straight towards me, staring at me. And I can't really go anywhere else. <laughs> I can't just turn around and walk the other way. So <laughs> I fear I, I, I for the worst, I assume the worst, um, because it was not uncommon for you know a big group of kids all dressed similarly to want to do something to you that you would not like uh, at this time in Los Angeles. Uh, hip hop dance, break dance and all that was uh, in the 80s, uh, 90s, and going even back into the 70s, it was very much uh, in parallel with, uh, with gang culture and all that. So it was in many ways inseparable. So that's why I was very conscious of this and, and kind of worried about this uh, in that moment. But uh, instead of hitting me up, which is what you would do, you would ask someone what gang they're from, that, that, that was the slang term for it, to hit mm. someone up. Now it's mm. much more broad, but the mm. history of that term is a gang term. You want Very to know what yeah. gang someone is in, so you hit that fool up, right? Mm. Like that's, that was, that was the, uh, the lingo back then. Um, so instead of hitting me up, they asked me if I danced and I was you know, stunned and said, no, but I'd like to learn. And so they said, come on, we'll teach you. And that was the humble beginning. Now. Um, condensing this very long story into what came next, how I got the name. Um, I split off in that group and um, a couple of other friends and I decided to start a little crew of our own and we called it Floor Control. And we didn't have nicknames yet, so we were coming up with nicknames for each other 
because this is the way it is. You don't choose your own name in the hip hop mm. world. I mean, you can, but it's a pretty it's pretty rare for, for people to choose their own name. They're typically given a name based on something about their personality. And like you could you could reference that back to tribal cultures where uh, like Native American cultures, you would be given one name at birth and then once you go through your adulthood ritual, your you know, becoming a man or a woman ritual, you would mm. then be given a new name that would align with the person that you've become and the person you've shown yourself to be. So it was kind of the same sort of thing. So we would get this nickname based on our, our personality, what we were like, or maybe how we danced, or something like that. Um, and so I I was this kid with a, a lot of shaggy hair and long goatee, you know, and just very shaggy looking. And um, uh, we would bug out quite a bit. We would just just spontaneously do crazy things. And one of those stupid and crazy things I would do was grab one of my friends and just bite their scalp or something like that. <laughs> because we're just dumb kids doing dumb things, you know? Um, <laughs> and it was, it, it was funny, mostly to me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so my friends thought, you know, like, you're, 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 we're gonna call you Cujo because you remind us of the dog from the Stephen King novel and later film from the 70s. Um, which you know, if you're not familiar, it's a not all about a dog that gets rabies and goes around basically eating people, <laughs> trying to eat people. <laughs> yeah, so so they thought that that was me, and they kind of tossed back and forth. Like one of them was like, no, 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 let's call him Psycho, and the other guy was like, no, 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 that that's got no character. Kucho has more character to it, and so that that's the one that stuck. Um, I, I changed the spelling from a C to a K, just because like that's what you do in hip hop. Misspell yep. things intentionally, right? So, so that was the beginning. Uh, the crazy part was added to it. I, I did add that myself, but only because people kept calling me that. People kept saying, "Oh, that guy Cujo, he's crazy." Or, "Hey, you're Cujo, you're crazy," <laughs> right? Like that. People were just telling me that. So I thought, okay, well, you know, I would try to come up with like an online handle for like my email, my AOL email address mm. back, in, back in the <laughs> mid-90s when that was a, a very new thing. And so I thought I'll just be crazy Cujo at email, uh, sorry, AOL.com, later Gmail and all that. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's where the name came from. That's nice. And that, yeah, that, that reminds me of, you know, even in Capoeira, like uh, I was given my nickname as well, Halampako, and you don't choose that. It's just chosen for you. Right. Um, okay. And I find it really interesting because when you got that name, because it had these sort of connotations, do you think that it led you to, to becoming more of those sort of crazy actions? Because now you were like, okay, like I'm this, Oh, did that crazy part also get attached uh, with the, the Kujo or did that come afterwards? Um, yeah, the, the crazy, the adjective part of it, that did come a little later, a few years later, but uh, I really embraced it and I really had fun with that. And, and I think I, really think I never really thought about that, but I think I really did embrace it in that way and try to live up to that just because that was, that seemed to be how people saw me. You know, like for example, um, when, when, when you start getting into something like, Breaking, which is really competitive, you want to be the best. And when someone comes up to you and tells you, like, wow, you're the best B-boy I've ever seen, like, that's, a, that's a great compliment to hear from someone, one of the best compliments you can ever get. I didn't get that compliment very often. Hmm. I got told you're the most unique or you're the most original B-boy I've ever seen, or something along those lines, maybe not the most, but you know, like, wow, you're really different you really stand out i kept hearing comments like that 
that um, made me realize that I, maybe I'm not meant to be the number one people. Maybe I'm meant to stand out in this whole different way and to be, because I do things that are unusual. I, I move differently than people. I also don't hear very well at all. I, I don't know if you've um, um, learned of this in any of your, the, um, your homework on me, but um, I'm, I'm almost totally deaf. And yeah. that very much impacts the way that I dance because of the way that I do or, or do not hear music. That's really interesting. So, you know, when you first started as well, so was this a condition that you've had from when you were very, very young, like you haven't been able to hear very well? So, that's, yeah, that's right. So what sort of got you into all this breakdancing? Because you mentioned at the start, it's very much associated with gang culture. You know, I, I imagine at that time in Los Angeles as well, maybe it might, might have been pretty, pretty scary to walk into some of these cultures as well as a very young, young man. Like, was there just something about that that drew you into that that practice and that that culture? Because it sounded like, you know, if you got into the wrong parts as well, maybe it could have been pretty dangerous for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so two things. One is there. Yes, there's a sort of romanticization of it, which, you know, uh, I was not alone in that that idea of romanticizing dangerous environment or culture or what have you, because, you know, they romanticize violence all the time in movies and popular culture, music, hip-hop music especially, uh, gangster movies, crime movies, you know, as almost every movie that comes out is about people doing bad things, and that's what makes movies interesting, right? So mm -hmm. we, we do we very much romanticize that, and I think to some extent, the, the very young person that I was romanticized that as well in real life. But on the other hand, you couldn't get away from it in the environment that I was in. That's partly why uh, my parents sent me to the other high school. They sent me to a private high school, Catholic all-boys school that I really did not fit into because they were afraid that if I went to the public school, the public high school in Pasadena, that I would have really been swept up in the gay mm -hmm. culture because you could not get away from it. They knew I, you know, I had I had been into hip hop music and various parts of my, um, my youth. So I kind of went back and forth in my interest between hip hop music and heavy metal and punk rock and things like that. But um, still very much countercultural music, right? So they, but they just saw that I was gonna go down that path if I went to the wrong school and was in the wrong environment. So they thought, okay, we'll put him in this, in this private school. What could go wrong? Everything went wrong. And I, I, got, I got expelled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I was very fortunate that uh, I, I did get into dancing. I'm not into gangbang, right? Um, so again, you just couldn't get away from it. It was, you know, uh, uh, you were around it every day. It was hard not to be associated with it in some way. And so getting into dance was kind of like, ironically, the better way to do it, even though I was closer to the gangsters. They also liked me and respected me because I had, I had skills that they respected, that they were impressed by. They, mm. they thought the dance moves were cool. Whereas if I was a football player or something like that, that's almost another gang. And in my high school, it very much was kind mm. of a gang. Like they, they acted like a gang. They would beat people up together. They would get in fights with people together, you know, group fights and things like that. Um, so it was better that I was closer with these 
people <laughs> that, than the other way around. That's just, that, at least that, that was my particular experience. Many others have many different experiences, but that, that was really nice. And did dance just come naturally to you? Was it sort of a practice that you were like, okay, this is, this is it, it just clicked? Yes and no. Um, I, again, I had a hard time hearing music. I had no rhythm, very stiff white boy, stereotypical stiff white boy growing up, but that was compounded by not being able to hear music. So I was constantly offbeat with any dance steps, meaning stand up dance, party dance, that kind of thing. Just could not do it well, couldn't comprehend it. But put me on the floor and suddenly things became very natural. Hmm. So that's why I gravitated towards breaking because in LA, in California in general, in the 90s, the b-boy scene evolved in such a way that they got away from the dance element of it, the top style dance element of it, and more into the ground stuff, specifically power moves and spins and Mm-hmm. Um, flares when Mills has been Mendes, uh, you name it. Um, and so I really gravitated towards that because I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I felt pretty comfortable on the ground. I don't feel very comfortable standing up and dancing. I, I was, you know, first two or three years of my, my dance career. Um, so I'll just do this and I'll really focus on ground moves and specific ground moves that I, I like and seem to kind of have a knack for. And I won't even worry about this this whole top rock and footwork and rhythm musicality stuff. But, you know, they, they weren't even terms that we used back then. Mm. Uh, rhythm and musicality, it was just like you, you either could dance or you couldn't dance. And I seemed to be someone that couldn't dance, but I could do cleanups. So that was the beginning. Uh, later on, it became more important to me to try to listen to music, which was compounded by the deafness and became very, very difficult to do. But um, I, it became very important to me to try to be able to dance as well as I could, given my the thing of the body that I was built with, mm. uh, and to put my own spin on it. And uh, in, in, in doing so, I, I learned to um, I, I learned to adapt in, in a few different ways. So one one thing I would do was, um, you know, in in hip hop, it's we're always in a circle. Right, and always dancing in the circle of people, unless you're up on the stage, you know, doing the big performance. But in, in the circle, you're surrounded by people that are all doing this, you know, mm-hmm. or they're, they're clapping their hands to the beat, or they're bobbing their heads to the beat, or they're moving their shoulders, or they're moving their bodies to the beat, even if they're not the one person in the center of the circle yeah. who's getting down and showing off, right? Um, so as, when I was walking to the circle, all I had to do was look around and I could see where the beat was because everyone mm. was moving to it. Yeah. Right, but even if I couldn't hear anything else in the song, as long as I could hear that pulse, that count, right, then I could see enough of the beat to be able to move to it and to move in sync with it, in time with it. Uh, that, that was one. The second was I might hear part of a song. Uh, acoustics matter when you're hard of hearing because mm-hmm. you hear some things, you don't hear other things, or certain things are distorted in one environment and not so much in another environment. It depends on the speaker, it depends on the direction of the speaker, it depends on the size of the venue, indoor versus outdoor. It's, it's, everything matters so much. When I got into a stage performance, that became a big thing where we had to have speakers facing the artists on the stage, or right. if they only face the audience, they can hear everything, but I hear nothing. 
you know, so like there are all kinds of ramifications to that uh, that I, I, I learned by doing. Um, so if I can hear a little part of the song back home or in my car, I, I would have all these songs on I'd listen to them all the time. So I, I knew every song by heart. So if I heard a little piece of a song, like, you know, the Mexican by Babe Ruth or Apache by Incredible Bang Club and some of our B-Boy anthems, uh, I instantly knew where in a song, I knew what, I recognized the part and I knew what came next and I knew what came after that and I could dance to it fairly comfortably. Three, sometimes none of that worked and I just had to go with what I thought I heard or just, Sometimes things actually sounded silent. Like I could hear like a, a, a droning noise or a static, but for all practical purposes, there's nothing there, it's just silence. And I would just move however I wanted. And so that allowed a certain freedom of expression that I was really interested in because uh, uh, maybe there were many times when I really tried hard to dance to the music spontaneously, never were improvising for the most part. Unless it's a choreographed routine or a show, we're improvising, we're first time. So when I tried, to listen to the music and time my movements to the music, I often felt caged. I often felt trapped uh, because there was too much structure provided by that music. Again, this, this can be interpreted the entirely opposite way, but this was my interpretation at this time. Say we're talking like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and so at, at this point, I, I would just embrace that silence and how I wanted to in whatever time I wanted to. And strange things came out. And it was a lot of fun. It was, um, what's the word? Um, it was big dichotomy in response to this. We either loved it or hated it. People that loved it thought it was very creative, it was abstract, it was unusual, right? There's that mm -hmm. kind of a, approach or response to it. And then the others thought it's offbeat, there's nothing matches the music, it's, it's weird, they're not doing the vocabulary that we accept that we're accustomed to, that we're all doing, because I would actively try to avoid specific stuff that I thought we were done, mm -hmm. right? Break dance, we have the six step, we have baby we have, you know, certain things like that that are very, very common movements that are fundamental, you gotta learn them, and I did, but uh, you also gotta build on them and take them into unusual and interesting places, right? But I would just avoid them altogether because I thought they were boring. So, you know, I, 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 I was very much aware of this. Of, of the impression that I was creating and the, uh, this, this dichotomy of, of interest <laughs> that I was creating and, and respond. And a lot of people said, you're not a people. This is too, like, yeah, you gotta be original as a people. You gotta have your own style, but this is too much. You're going so far off the deep end that you're doing something else now. Like, you don't know what it is. I really love how you've turned this challenge that you were facing just with how you are into your own strength. Like that's, that's really powerful. And the learning strategies as well that you compiled to overcome that so that you could still dance. I'm wondering when you, during that time as well, how did you train and how did you learn? Because these days in the modern world, you know, you can Google anything, you can go into YouTube. There's a whole bank of all these tutorials breaking down, all sorts of movements, but I'm guessing, you know, back in the nineties, very different world. How did you go about learning to dance, to, to, to break? Uh, well, obviously no YouTube back then, no tutorials whatsoever. 
Um, we had VHS tapes of certain things, certain events, uh, or practice sessions with somebody that record. Somebody you know, fortunate enough to have a video camera at that time, a very large one that could fit a VHS tape in it. And <laughs> um, uh, we didn't have that. So we would, in the very beginning, you know, I mimicked some of the stuff I saw uh, other dancers do, or that I saw in movies like Breaking or Beat Street, because that's what we had in the 80s. Um, later on, we would, we would start to go to events and see what people were doing. And then gradually, this was my, my process. Yes, I learned some of the things other people did, but in understanding that I needed to be original, I really focused on that. You know, yeah, you got to have style, you got to be on beat, you got to do all these other things, got to clean, et cetera. But I really focused on that originality concept. Um, and so what I did was the more breaking I was exposed to, the more commonalities I saw. Uh, the more common denominators, the more themes, recurring themes that I saw. And so I started to look at this as one big puzzle, jigsaw puzzle. And I thought, okay, well, what pieces are missing? And what pieces, what of those missing pieces can I provide given the abilities and the imagination and the limitations that I have that only I can provide at this time? Let's, let's find out. And so, for example, one thing that people didn't do a lot of was, you know, like Wally did a lot of baby phrases, right? So a little stab like that, a crocodile, so to speak, into magic single. Um, or they might do a handstand, a vertical handstand, maybe with one hand, or they might like flick the legs and a kick kick or whatever they called it. You know, these totally stole that from Capoeira. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't remember the Brazilian name for it, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, it's part of a cartwheel, but not quite a cartwheel. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, like we had a couple of little things like that, but really people just didn't do straight armed phrases. Mm. And when they did the phrases, they were quick. They were a second or two, and then they were off to the next thing. So I thought two things. One, can I develop the upper body strength to hold more straight armed phrases, such as eventually a flange, lunge, whatever. Um, and two, can I develop a style where I'm on my hands a lot more than my feet. And I'm actually learning to dance with my body in this straight arm or bent arm or whatever position, you know, with my feet off the floor. And I call that footless footwork because mm. I was doing leg movements, you know, yep. uh, to the beat the best I could. Um, and I was on my hands often in a plant. And my thinking was that this is so hard to do for me and probably for anyone else that I don't think anyone is going to try to copy this from me anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I was right, you know, because obviously copying was like very back then in our world. We call it fighting, right? We have lots of little symbols that we use like, ah. <laughs> And there's, you know, if someone does that, if someone, if someone called you a fighter in the 90s, you were going to fight. Okay. It was bad. You just yep. didn't do that back then. Now it's something you see left and right and people shake hands and hug after they call each other fighters. And the guys my age and I'm in his 40s and older, they laugh because you, you just didn't do that back then. Like it, it loses all meaning, right? Mm -hmm. When everyone's a fighter, no one's a fighter and it's pointless. But back then it was a really serious defense. So my goal was to be as original as possible in such a way that the, the difficulty was elevated so high that people could not fight the movement that I was doing. So that was one direction that I went in. Spot was spot work with arm style stuff, right? With flanges and whatnot. Uh, flanges into power moves back into flanges and 
many, many other things, like a, a popular one that people who had access to LimeWire back in the day would download a clip of me where I did a, a 90 little spin on the hand, right? Yep. And then down into a plunge. And then that plunge, I kind of warmed in the air out mm -hmm. of that 90, you know? And it became this really popular clip that it downloaded. I, I'm gonna say thousands of times, but it was probably many more than that. I really don't, I couldn't tell you how many times it was downloaded or how many people have told me that that's the first clip they ever downloaded on the internet mm -hmm. uh, other people, you know? Um, and I had these green pants and this black thermal thermal shirt and this big old afro, you know. And um, so I, I could do things like that that I thought were impossible to do. That it couldn't be copied. And then, starting in '99, this was '96 to '98. That was really focusing. You know, I, even though it was '94 and '98, I was really focusing on things like this, trying to develop my arms to be strong enough to support my body in these ways. Um, I'm not flexible on my spine or shoulder. I couldn't do a hollow back, you know, the big arching moves yep. where you're doing a bridge in the air. Couldn't do any of that, but I could do another way, you know, horizontal or sideways, like a slide. You know, I could do all those things and did a lot of cool things with those, um, with those positions. But then I thought, okay, there's a there's a movement called a shoot through, which is like you do a bronco where you jump onto your onto your hands, and then when you jump back to your feet, you miss your feet shoot your feet through, through your hands or underneath your body and then you land on your back. So, on back. so it's like you start on your hands, you do a flip and then land on your well, hands. It's not so, really a flip. It's just, yeah. it's just uh, you know, you've seen this many times. It's just like you're on your hands, just under you and then just shoot your legs through your hands. Maybe your hands leave the floor like a bronco mm. or a donkey kick, right? And you land flat on your back, right? So it's about a 180 of a movement. You're about horizontal and facing the floor and then you're horizontal on your back facing up right so a couple of b-boys did that and um it was you know because a stunt thing it's a shallow thing right um and i thought what if we could do that the other way and if we could reverse that what if you could do it sideways what if you could do it with a twist what if you could do it off your head off your shoulder to your head to your shoulder what if you could do two in a row I started to think like this. And so this evolved into the series of flips where I basically flipped off my hands and either tried to land on the hands again or land on something. Basically to do these handspring or cartwheel round off type movements and miss my feet and mm -hmm. to see what happened. So we were uh, off the air, we were talking about a gymnastics gym. This is called LA Valley College in the Van Nuys area of Los Angeles. And uh, I would go to this open gym spot with a gymnastics floor, big blue floor for anyone that's old enough to remember seeing these clips because these clips were you know, put out for the world to see. And I would throw my body either off of like a head spring and miss my feet and catch back on my hands. Sometimes I could actually catch back into a headstand and do it again. I went there yep. four in a row. Um, or I would do Cartwheel, miss my feet, land on my shoulder, and then roll up into some kind of spin. Um, I was eventually able to catch back on my hands and effectively do a double cartwheel. And after doing these things in 99 to 2001, in these experimental sessions at this gym, I would start to do them on normal floors. You know, it was gradual. I went from the soft floor, spent floor to yep. grass, to um, carpet, 
then to like a softer wood floor, you know, like a pretty comfortable dance floor, maybe in a studio or a basketball court, um, indoor basketball court, and then to the tile floors and concrete and things like that. And I could do these music anywhere. And I did do them everywhere. Yeah. And again, this is 99 to 2001 with all the stuff that we come up with. And between 2001 to 2004, I was performing things in public at B-Boy events and other performances. Yeah, and I'm sure that no one had done those type of moves before because they just sound like completely crazy, <laughs> like even as yeah. you <laughs> describe them. Yeah. So You're right. And, and like now, and it's funny now because I get tagged in these Instagram clips every week of some kid who is maybe a teenager, maybe 21 or something, doing one of these moves. And uh, I'm, they're, they're tagging me because they know that I did it back in the 90s mm-hmm. or 2000. Uh, but the person doing the move in the clip has been that they've ever done before. They think that they're the first. Yeah. Or but now, because now there's a few, it's this new thing that mm. a few talented tricksters or gymnasts that you know, people that need a combination of the two or three need to get the boys to. Um, you know, they combine the disciplines, which is you know, part of what we do now. We have this amalgamation of movement, you know, everything is just kind of intermixed and it's not really segregated as much as we have once been. But, you know, these, these people practice gymnastics, they practice tricking, they practice spray running, they practice breaking, they do stunts, you know, they make it, but they have the coordination and the balls to <laughs> do these moves, mostly on soft floors, the same kind of gymnastics floor that I learned them on. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I don't think you're seeing too many people do these on hard floor, let alone you know, concrete, which is what I had ended up doing. And so you mentioned about developing your body to have the necessary strength. And I've seen you do these, you know, ridiculous planches, which is kind of in your own style as well, because, you know, you compare the gymnastics plants is very much a specific form, right? Where it's like straight lines. And when you do it, it's like a lot more loose, but you integrate it into this dance style and developing this footless footwork on your hands as well. You know, it, involves a great deal of upper body strength and coordination. How did you go about developing the necessary attributes so that you could spend and hold your whole body weight on your hands in all these different angles? Because coming from the body weight gymnastic strength world, you know, it's very regimented, you know, I'm doing planche training at the moment and you're mm-hmm. timing the reps and the sets, but I'm wondering about your approach during that time. So, Again, we didn't have tutorials where someone could teach you how to do planches and, and have that sort of training at this time. We now with the planches, we're going back to mid nineties, right? For uh, in my in my my development, um, so I learned it by doing it over and over. I did not have a plan, did not have a regimen. I just did it over and over until a bit later. I thought, okay, well now now it makes sense to kind of figure out some things that I can do because I've got time, uh, you know, I don't want to go to the gym, that's boring, you know, uh, compared to now, you know, I had a very different view of, of weight training. Um, although I have done weight training off and on since I was like 12, <laughs> you know, every few years I would take another crack at it and then get bored and leave it alone again. Um, but uh, eventually I started to do things like that. You know, I got good enough to do plant push-ups, for example. So I would start to see, like, well, how many can I do? And I don't even remember what my record was. It was 20 or 30. You know, I just 
It's a big gap, you know, big range. But I honestly don't remember what the number was. It's straddle punch push-ups, you know. Not, it's a lot. Not full uh, <laughs> so, and, but I mean, I weighed like 125 <laughs> at the time. I, I'm, I'm a bit more than that now. So I don't think I could do anywhere near that many. Um, but um, I would do little things like this. And it wasn't until people asked me how to do these things that I started to think about how to break them down and regress things. You know, and I wasn't thinking about sets and reps yet, that uh, I didn't understand sets and reps until I actually seriously got into the training, where that's all you do, right? Uh, in a strategic kind of way, depending on what you're going. Um, so, you know, like I, I, I would give people not specific sets and reps to do, but I would just talk to them about the fundamental uh, approaches underneath or underlying uh, the sets and reps training, or like, you know, the, the whole principle of progressive overload. How do you progressively overload a bodyweight exercise without adding weight? Mm-hmm. That's no longer a bodyweight exercise, right? So then it becomes about leverage. You, know, you change the levers, you change the moment arm, you change the torque involved at the shoulder joint or at the wrist joint or at the elbow or you know at the hip, depending. Like if you know if you're like maybe one of those people that have a difficult time actually flattening the body in a plank and you have a little bit of a pike or your butt sticks up, you know, um, you know, I gotta give recommendations here and there and workshops uh, just you know when people ask I, I i didn't really make a thing out of it and i really could have and should have but it's okay now, other people have picked that up and, and done very well with that but um but yeah i i would do little things like that here and there but i was not strategic about it because it came pretty naturally so i was able to get better at it just by doing it and i i, I only got a bit more regimented about the training when I was asked by other people how to do the same thing. Mm. And I'm not sure if you've heard a lot about in strength training as well, there's a very popular narrative about structural balance. You know, you got to balance pushing with pulling when you're squatting, like squat with hinging movements with when I see break dancing, especially there's, you know, you're always on the floor, you're always like pushing. Did you ever work on, you know, like a lot of pulling movements or certain exercises to kind of proof your body to like, maybe like in your wrists, especially as, as well. Did you have a big focus on that? Um, yeah. So there's, there's a, a multi-part answer to this. So, so uh, one, I want to, I want to, I want to make a disclaimer that a lot of that structural balance uh, concept has been debunked by exercise science, where they really don't think anymore after conducting many studies on this and meta analysis and these studies that you actually need such a specific or strict structural balance. For example, in pushing and pulling, like in the weight world, weight training world, for powerlifters especially, they often say that, well, because you're benching so much, and then the other two power looking the squat and the deadlift don't involve any real pulling of the lats in particular, but also the um, extension muscles in the back, like the trap and the lumbars, et cetera, um, that you should double up how much pulling you do to balance out all the pushing you're doing. So every, every three sets of 10 you do on the bench, you should do six sets of 10 of some kind of pulling, right? That, that's the theory. That, that's been debunked uh, outright by exercise science. So um, while I, I don't read all the papers in detail, I, I, you know, I got a degree in kinesiology 
uh, way back in, uh, in 2009. I understand enough of the science to say, okay, this is what they've concluded, and then they verified it, and it's peer reviewed, it's a meta analysis. Okay, I, I'm good with that. I don't need to structure my training that way anymore. I, and I try to keep up to date on this, um, especially for powerlifting and training and all that. Um, but when it came to this sort of training with financials and things like that, um, as soon as I got interested in circuit stuff like aerial and climbing and ropes and poles and things like that, then I realized, oh crap, I never trained these muscles. This is actually really hard. I think I'm strong, but and like I can do pull-ups and stuff like that. I've always been able to do pull-ups. Um, the rope climbing without feet came pretty quickly, you know, and I could kind of do a flag pretty easily and the circle climbs on the pole and things like that pretty easily without much training. It was still really hard. Um, especially, so, so let me back up a little bit. So um, at, that, at LA Valley College where they have that an open gym night that I would go to um, and do whatever I wanted, they also had a once a week gymnastics class for adults that were students at the college, the community college. So I actually signed up and we took that for, you know, a few semesters, I don't remember how many. So, um, you know, I, I got asked a lot if I had been a gymnast before I interviewed that. And my answer was always obviously no, because as you mentioned, if I had been a gymnast before I was a people, you could see the lines, mm-hmm. very crisp and clear and clean lines. And I'd have perfect flares. What are you talking about? You flare the shit. I could do one or two, but I was not known for my flares um, at all. Uh, but people saw the flanges and uh, the UFOs, what uh, they call blocks, which in gymnastics are called Russians and Norway, they do on the bottom house, you know, and all that kind of, you know, you know that thing, I could do circles and things like that. Um, I learned that I, I either figured out on my own how to do some of these gymnastics things, which is why my flanges don't look like a gymnastics flange, or I learned them in my late 20s in this community college class, way after I had started breaking. I've been breaking for you know, 10, 12 years already. Um, and uh, in, in this gymnastics class, main takeaways were I got my handstands cleaner, a little bit more vertical. And so my handstands were always very plunge-ish. It was like I was trying to make a plunge vertical. And that's <laughs> one, because lack of shoulder mobility, I don't have a lot of shoulder flexion. Um, and two is balance. Uh, um, a lot of people that are hard of hearing have major issues with balance. I'm one of them because the, the hearing issue I have in my right ear, which is a zero hearing, uh, is nerve based. And so that nerve is connected with um, the nerves that balance um, the vestibular, vestibular cochlear nerve. So the cochlear nerve governs hearing, the vestibular nerve governs balance, they are twin nerves, right? So that nerve is dead. So I got the really crappy balance. I, I stumble and fall all the time. I, like I'm falling in the walls around my house, it's awful. Uh, but, uh, uh, but that's since, since I was born, pretty much, and uh, all the way now until my fourth, it's an issue with balance. So I had a hard time holding a handstand because of balance, never got a one-arm handstand, um, right? So I was able to clean that up a little bit in this gymnastics class, that was one thing. Um, got my circles better, right? Because there's someone telling me how to do them. Got my flips a little cleaner. You know, taught myself how to backflip and how to do um, Arabians and full twists, right? Um, but it still looked like I taught myself how to do them. <laughs> in the gymnastic class, I got a bit better. And then finally, rooms. And I could do a muscle up without any guidance. I could, uh, could kind of already do that just, just by sheer force of will. It wasn't mm-hmm. that hard. But they helped me really clean up some of that stuff. Um, never got great at it. You know, still, still can't do an iron cross, for example. Uh, again, balance issues. I can't do a proper handstand without my feet or legs on the straps of the rings. 
but um, you know, I could do things like that. But that's when I realized, you know, this is a whole different type of strength, my upper body strength, mm-hmm. where under the, my lats and my carries and my rumbles and my lower traps. And like, I'm not used to this. This is weird. Um, and then I, I, I got really interested in Cirque du Soleil when I saw the, uh, the DVDs like Kibam, which to this day is still my favorite Cirque du Soleil show. Um, yeah, even though it's what, probably nearly 30 years old now. Um, um, maybe not that old, but maybe 25. But you know, I saw it in 2000. I saw that DVD in the year 2000. That's when I thought, I want to learn how to do these things. I saw the aerial on the ropes. I saw the, 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 the duo body balance work. Um, uh, they didn't have a pole in that one, but they had a German wheel, you know. And uh, you know, and, and I started to think, well, it would be really cool to transition into that if I could. And um, so uh, I, I did a bunch of stuff. I did modern dance, I did ballet, thinking, oh, they were going to help me, you know, uh, if I ever want to go in that direction, right? Um, uh, a lot of challenges there, <laughs> you know, uncoordinated, stiff dancer, hard of hearing, trying to do something, mm. you know, just, yeah, um, whole other. Um, diversion there if you want to go down that road. But, um, but from there, uh, what ended up happening was um, I started to take the, uh, I was taking classes in my community college and then transferred to university. And in university, a dance teacher said, You should become a choreographer because you break gymnastics, um, body weight stuff, uh, ballet, modern dance. Uh, I did a little couple of it up once upon a time, 1993, with um, Mr. Yeah. Mr. I'm in Santo. Um, well, for like a month, a month and a half or something, you know, 16 or 17. You know, and, um, I had a knack for it, but I didn't have the money to pay for it. My dad was going to make me pay for it. And I didn't have a job. So that, that was the end of that. Um, <laughs> but I always had a, always retained some love for it. You know, mm-hmm. and um, like I had, you know, I did a couple of theater shows where they had to do it, you know, I was even doing it. It was just fine, right? Um, so uh, she, she said, you should become a choreographer. And I teach a class in choreography theory and you can switch your major to uh, kinesiology but underneath kinesiology you could either focus on dance or exercise science or physical therapy or you know things like that so I, I, I took her up on that and I focused on dance and, um, and I was studying both the science um, and, and practical applications of kinesiology and the practical application was in dance uh, so that was a lot of fun and, and in that uh, experience I started a dance company at first, it was just a dance company, and I looked for people that could do the same thing that I did. They could break, they could do modern ballet, contemporary, and some combination of their skills and gymnastics, etc. And um, we put together some some uh, some performances, and you know, we won some awards. And then uh, another friend of mine, who was uh, one of these duo body balance types, um, he, and he and his partner used to train at Ellen Valley College. Once again, you know, it wasn't only a gymnastics spot. All kinds of people came there. So they would practice their routine there. They would see me doing these stupid flips, landing on my face and all that. And then, <laughs> they would admire, and then I would admire them doing their, their hand-to-hand balance acts. Um, so this guy called me and said, hey, you know, like I'm looking for dancers for, for my shows. And, and I like what you've done here with your company. And I think this would be a good fit. Just put circus costumes and makeup instead of whatever we were wearing, the more contemporary type costumes, right? Um, and um, in doing that, we got to be around a lot of circus equipment, like poles. And I had dabbled in pole, but never really focused on you know, the aerial. I played around on a rope, but 
like the climbing thing I've been down in college, just got an aerial hit of there and lost climbing and I went on that and I raced in it and it was awful, pulling myself up. Um, but I, I gravitated towards something called strats because it was very much like the rings. Mm. And when I got into strats, I really realized what a deficit I had in pulling strength compared to pushing strength. So I needed, it's a very long-winded answer to your question, but there is a place for structural balance, but it depends. If you're doing it for weight training, you don't have a specific reason for it, it, it might be pointless. I needed it to do straps. And I had decided right then and there, uh, 2009, uh, I decided right then and there that I was going to make straps my focus for the next however long and become a bona fide circus artist. And, and I did. And from straps, I quickly transitioned into pole, bought my own pole, but just, just really went all in on these two things. And, and uh, uh, I, Again, I was really obsessed with the difficulty level in breaking, in addition to the originality of mm. the things that were hard because they were hard. So I chose two of the hardest things that you can do on the circuit, and that's aerial straps and jumping pole. And um, I had quite a bit of fun with those, but again, I had to really retrain my body to handle the pulling because I wasn't used to it. I also had to retrain my body to handle five-minute performances instead of 30-second performances, mm. which is what you get when you break, right? <laughs> That's a wonderful journey that you undertook, I think, because like as your perspective broadened and then you had the new context in it, then you had the reason then to devote yourself to a whole different area of practice, right? And I really like... So it's, it seems as well that as you were very devoted to the breakdancing you're not really thinking about any of this at all but you know your, your body being so resilient could could still perform all the things that you needed to do right and then when you entered into this more circus world then you needed to incorporate completely different movements i guess it exposed you but then you could just switch over to that which is yeah really really amazing to hear and i always like like to think about how we always need context for our movement intentions you know i think it's very important right. to always to, to always have those and i'm wondering you know as you reflect back onto your past like if if you were young again now that you have all this you're equipped with all this knowledge you know you mentioned you had your degree in kinesiology you i think you've studied across all these different disciplines as well if you're young again and you're relearning breakdancing you know from the very start do you think you would have you would approach it a bit differently? If so, how? It's 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 always hard to answer questions like that because we don't we don't know. Um, like for example, like 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 some of the considerations were financial, right? Like I wanted to get into gymnastics as a child, but couldn't afford gymnastics lessons, and breakdancing was free. Mm -hmm. You could do that anywhere on the sidewalk or in the garage or just anywhere the school hallway, right? Um, so that, that's what that's what happened there. But imagine if I had become a gymnast, who knows, right? I, I could have been great or I could have just had a catastrophic injury and never done any other stuff again, which is not uncommon. Um, it is very hard to say. I really loved that brief exposure to Capoeira. What if I had figured out a way to continue that? I might not have been a B-boy, become the great B-boy that I became, right? It's 1993, this is right after I started. Uh, might have gone down a whole different path, and uh, I don't know if I would have stood up single in a couple of orange gymnastics, but I don't know. Um, I got into circus only because I was exposed to it, and I had the opportunity. If I had not been, I wouldn't have done it, I don't think. You know, I wouldn't have taken advantage of it. Um, 
uh, in theory, hypothetically, I might have done more weight training because now that I'm really doing it and understanding it, with the scientific background that I have, a limited of that is still something. Um, I see the benefit that I had shunned when I was younger. Yeah, you know, I just looked at it from the perspective of repetition and just that it's boring. You're just doing the same thing as an author. The only thing that changes is the volume or the intensity of the amount of weight trip you're lifting. Um, it looks dull and endless when spinning your wheels, you know, like a hamster stuck in a cave. Uh, that's how I always looked at it. And now I understand it very differently. It's a, it's a tool to keep yourself healthy. And that's initially why I joined the gym. One is again, financial. I saw one that had a $10 a month special, but jumped on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also because I thought, well, this is good timing because, uh, you know, I think this was 2014. So I was, you know, 38. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not that many of us continue acrobatic careers into our 40s, right? So let me, let me start taking care of my body. Let me think about the issues I've got. Of course, I've got shoulder issues. I've got risk or back or whatever. You know, I've got all these things. Let me see if I can, if I can strengthen these areas that seem to get hurt a lot from all the work that I'm doing, acrobatics, and breaking, plunges, et cetera. And um, being the person I am, yeah, a little bit too much into it. And, you know, it just went a little bit too hardcore very quickly. Um, like what we did at first, my, my girlfriend, now fiance, and I would want to get in and out as quickly as possible. So we would say, okay, well, what's the most efficient way to work out? Because we were working out at um, peak hours, you know, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., everybody there. And uh, it's crowded, it was not fun, and we just want to get in and out. So we did a little bit of research and we saw someone say somewhere online, it was probably um, that Yo Elliot guy, um, Elliot Holtz. I think it was Elliot <laughs> Holtz who said that if, if you're pressed for time, you can condense your workouts into two. One, you squat and do some kind of pulling movement, like a rut or a pull up. The other, you bench and you deadlift. And so we thought, okay, that sounds good. We're hitting just about everything in the body, right? And, you know, like, we didn't know. Elliot Hulse from anyone else and we had a big YouTube channel, so we just followed that. We didn't know any better. Um, don't know what he's doing now, don't care. I haven't followed that in, in, in quite a while, but I, I know he went off the deep end at one point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw the screaming video and that was that. Um, but, uh, but so so we did that for a while and quickly we realized that, oh, um, three of these four movements are a sport unto himself. It's, it's a sport unto itself. It's called powerlifting. That's cool. Why don't we focus on powerlifting? That's interesting. And, you know, I like strength. I've always been into strength-based stuff. I was always trying to be the strongest B-boy. I, I picked the two circuit arts that require, two of the circuit arts that require the most strength. But it sounds fine. <laughs> and I just went all out and really wanted to find out how much I could squat and bench and deadlift, especially deadlift. Uh, did not anticipate this, but that ended up becoming the thing that I was good at. I mean, didn't, I would not have understood why if I didn't have the kinesiology background. I actually, if I was dumb, I would have thought, oh, I'm going to be a great venture because I've got these strong arms. But in reality, I've got these long arms. Hmm. That's not great for venture. And especially with the shoulder issues I've got, that, that's, you know, two strikes against me for prevention. So I'm not a great venture when it comes to this stuff. But I am a pretty good deadlifter, and it's partly because of the long arm, partly because I'm short. It also uh, has to do with, you know, the, the, the 
uh, don't just have long arms. They aren't, aren't really that long. A lot of people have longer arms than me, but I've got a short torso. I'm a short person and part of the torso. So when I stand up straight, my if I just let my arms hang, my fingers almost touch my kneecaps without bending over or slouching. So that tells you right there, the body doesn't have travel very far. And then mm -hmm. switch that to sumo and cut that range of motion a little bit further. And then you switch that to hook grip where the bar hangs just a little bit lower in the hand. And you've got this recipe with a, you know, a, a pretty efficient pull and lift four times away. And for the people listening in, I do recommend for them to check out your Instagram profile where you have combined in clips of you doing top rocks or dancing. And then the next clip is you pulling, I think it's like 280 kilos with a, a, a sumo deadlift. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen, you know, that sort of combination done, done before, uh, which is, you know, so interesting. And with this new powerlifting that you you've incorporated, have you seen that affect your dancing capabilities or abilities in, in any way? Um, yeah. Um, both. It's helped and hindered in certain ways, right? So um, two-thirds of power lifting is lower body-based, right? It's, it's, it's a squat and a gentleman. So I, um, part of the reason I've wanted to power lift is because my, my legs were skinny and weak. Now, in, in the calisthenic stuff, the boy stuff, the circuit stuff, that helped quite a bit because, you know, with a, with a disproportionately strong upper body and this really light weight and weaker lower body, can fly through planches and flies and mm -hmm. things like that, right? Legs were not super weak, but it's still strong enough to backflip, you know, forklift and all, all those cool things. Um, but they weren't particularly strong. Um, squat is my nemesis. I'm not a great squatter. Not a bad squatter either, but it's not a great squatter. I'm not, not built for that. Um, but I, I do spend a lot of time squatting. Um, that's built up my lower body quite a bit to where now the planches and things like that are challenging. Not impossible, just not even that much harder. Just the, Touch harder. Um, you could still do one at the drop of a hat, you know, like a, 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 like one of my best friend's weddings with his past weekend. I was a groomsman. We prepared a dance to surprise the bride, you know, choreography and everything, followed by people boy solos with, you know, being done by 45 year old men. It was pretty funny. But, uh, but you know, like the first, the first thing I did in my solo was a plunge and walk on air up into a handstand on beat and then back down into a plunge, full plunge and hold. Mm -hmm. for a second before then moving on doing some other stuff. Still got and it. And there was no, no warm up, no prep. I haven't done that move in months. I'm significantly heavier right now. Um, mm -hmm. So like, for example, I competed in the 66 kilo weight class when I do compete in powerlifting, it's been a while, uh, but I'm currently uh, 68, 68.5 kilos. I'm a little overweight if I were gonna compete you know, next week, I would not be, <laughs> I, I, I would have a tough time. Uh, getting down the weight. Um, but, you know, I'm heavier than I used to be in. I'm significantly heavier than uh, 125 pounds I was in high school, which is what, uh, 58, 57.5, you know, kilos, something like that. That's a big, it, it, it's a big difference in weight. Um, so, one, yes, it's a little harder to do some of these things, but on the other hand, I'm so much stronger, so much healthier that if doesn't hurt in the bad ways anymore. It's a little more challenging in terms of the muscles, the muscular effort, and the leverages and the torque involved, but it's a little less painful in terms of some of the joints, the shoulders in particular, 
you know, and uh, the back especially, my, like deadlifts were a miracle for my back. Even, even, even when I had no clue what I was doing, and I did a horrible conventional deadlift, I even worked gloves at one point. It didn't mm. matter. Like I just the, the very act of doing deadlifts every week made my back so resilient that I stopped having issues. But I used to have to go and see a chiropractor every couple of months and mm. get adjusted. Yeah. You know, and I don't even believe in chiropractic. <laughs> I just went because I, I think I did ART, I took all these techniques, and yeah. that, that's why I went to him. Like, I, I tried going, going to other chiropractors, and if I didn't do ART, they were ineffective. They just wanted to crack my back and not uh, And I didn't really find any benefit in that. And science also said there's no real benefit beyond the temporary relief those position pressure you get from that. That may be controversial, but that's you know that's that's what that's what they say. But anyway, the ART seemed to really do quite a bit of good, and I was able to stop that by virtue of deadlifting. It wow. really, really made my back robust and, and feel great. I am stiffer though; it's harder to tie my shoes. That kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's you know it always reminds me about this um, saying, which is like you know the, the dosage determines whether it's the poison or the cure, right? Because sometimes people are like, oh, you know, if my back sore, you don't you don't want to deadlift because that sounds pretty scary, right? But given the right dosages and that principle of progressive overload, it can it can be the the cure in, in of itself. So the one sort of final area I, I really wanted to touch on and you've already started um, touching on it a bit is about this concept of longevity and you know sure. keeping your body in a great condition to do the things that you love doing so I mean it sounds you've been in a very he heavy sort of physical practice for a very long time now um, I mean I don't know if you mind me asking but how old are you at the moment 44 at the moment uh, a few more months off be 45 and you started doing this breaking thing for what, when you were six or eight, eight years old, you, you were saying, so. It's... Kind of, yeah. Like I, 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 tend to, I tend to say, you know, 92 is when I really mm. started to manage, when those guys took me aside and showed me some moves. But, but it was just like trying to spit on my back and walk when I was, when I was a kid <laughs> <laughs> and not much else. Yeah, so how have you specifically really adapted your training to help with this orientation of staying within the practice and extending longevity? It's um, uh, at the moment. I mean, we're 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 at the uh, at the tail end of this whole pandemic-related shutdown. Things are starting to open up now. Just this week, even in California, um, just a couple of days ago, really, really, yeah, uh, June fifteenth, everything began reopening in California. Now June seventeenth that we're recording this, and um, um, again, it became opportunity-based, so and necessity-based. Um, a lot of stuff happened to me in the shutdown and happened to my family that, that really affected my ability and desire to train, uh, dance in particular. Plus there was nothing to do, nowhere to go. You know, it, it, breaking is very communal. It's, I have never really enjoyed dancing like that. I've done it. I haven't done a ton of it. It's much more fun when it's with the boys. It's at, a, at a, an event, at a battle, you know, performance. So uh, uh, it's just a practice, a communal practice space, which you know, I did used to attend every week. And that all got shut down. All, all the gigs ended, all, you know, were canceled. And all, all of our trips, uh, me and the guys I work with uh, had planned, they were all canceled. And um, 
all kinds of other stuff had to happen financially and et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, my, my father got very sick and eventually passed away in the middle of the shutdown just last year, just uh, not quite a year ago. And uh, it's, it's my entire focus had to just shift from my own training to taking care of the family and figuring out what do we do next, how do we, you know, like uh, moving to this house in the pandemic, you know, that, that required a big shift of uh, priorities and focus. And um, throughout all this, I did continue to go to this private gym that I trained at, but fortunately a friend of mine owned, and he, he taped up the walls, like the windows, and nobody could see that we were training, but nobody was allowed to train for a while. You know, and uh, and we just let a few people come and train at a time, and I, so I was very fortunate. I get I got to keep powerlifting at least, and that became my salvation throughout the pandemic. And uh, um, I did miss dancing, didn't get to do it except occasionally in the gym, provided there was no one else there, because I didn't want to have to explain to the gym goers why I was like dancing alone upstairs, <laughs> um, because they, they don't. You know, I, I don't really know that many people at the gym. Only a few people there, I know a few of them very well, but they don't know me as Kuja as people. They just know me as Jacob, the guy that deadlifts a ton of weight. <laughs> and that's that. And so I keep the worlds pretty separate when I'm in the gym, except when I'm alone, I have the opportunity to take it down a bit. And even then, it's literally right after deadlifts. Almost always, almost every clip of me dancing in the gym is right after deadlifts. Surprisingly, even though that's by far the most good I can make and the, the most stress I put my body to, it's the easiest to dance right after. Squats, uh, I'm a little bit more winded. I can do it, but I'm a little more winded. <laughs> um, um, it's a bit more, it's a, it's a lot more metabolic stress. Feels like cardiovascular stress, even though it isn't quite. Uh, dancing is a little harder after squatting. Dancing, my kind of breaking, is impossible after the bench. My arms don't work. <laughs> so it's, it's become... Um, the thing that when I can, my, my little cool down after deadlifts and all the other stuff I do after that, uh, hamstring and back is a little bit of a Um So the, my, my routine lately in terms of promoting longevity has been uh, focusing on powerlifting because I, 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 I want to get as strong as possible. That's just always been my thing. I want to see what, what kind of numbers I can hit. I'd like to hit 700 pounds on a deadlift. I don't know if I ever will. 17.5 kilos, right? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll take 650 at this point, <laughs> 295. <laughs> um, I, I, I'd love to bench a little bit more, you know, like 142.5 would be nice. That three, 314, almost three plates kind of level. I'd love to squat 500 pounds, 227. Um, you know, like I have these little goals there, but really, um, the probably the biggest um, motivation for me to continue the weight training as hard as I am is my father because I've watched him deteriorate as he got older. He mm -hmm. was the one that got me into weight training when I was 12 years old. We had a little garage gym, just a bench and some dumbbells. Uh, I had a little leg extension attached to the bench, you know. Had a couple of crappy barbells that could be curls or tricep extensions with, but not much else. Um, and he was stronger than me, because my father, of course he was. I was a preteen kid. But um, he eventually got bored and quit. And he never picked it back up. And he deteriorated more and more and more. And uh, in the 70s, and then finally his early 80s, he passed at 82. Um, he, he was so hunched over. It, it was very depressing to see what a wreck his back had become. Uh, he, had, he had actual stress ruptures all throughout his spine. His last few months were miserable. 
every little movement I would scream in pain, you know, that can't happen to me. I am potentially destined for that to happen to me if genetics are a thing, which they are. And if I've got his genetics, as far as spinal structure and whatnot, then that's what I've got to look forward to, unless I do something about it. Mm. So I am training my butt off in the gym and training my back hard and training my deadlifts hard, my squats hard, and everything else. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to look like that or have that experience in my age if I get that far. Thank you for sharing that personal story. And yeah, it's, um, I look forward to seeing you hopefully dance for the next 20, 40, 60 years, you know, in the same sort of condition that you are now. And maybe just to end this beautiful conversation, I would just ask you, well, what's your all time favorite song to dance to? Uh, I've got two. Uh, I can't, I can't pick between the two because they're so different. Um, um, breakbeat and hip hop, you know, very different worlds, but they, you know, before YouTube shut down all of our music <laughs> for copyright <laughs> violation. Um, and now, now we dance to lasers and it's weird. Um, <laughs> um, um, my favorite breakbeat, The Mexican by David. Um, it's, it just does something to all of us, really, but it does something in particular and uh, it just makes me go nuts. Um, and uh, hip hop would be uh, Keeping the Faith by DLSO. It's got nice. this little flute that just makes my hair stand on end. And, uh, and I just love dancing to those two songs. Awesome, Jacob. Well, really appreciate you spending time with us today, Jacob. Cr okay. Crazy Cujo. Um, yes, insight into your practice and you know just the way you've approached things i think has been very unique so i love hearing that perspective and yeah uh just thank you for all your work all that all that you share and um hope that you can just keep on powerlifting dancing into the future thank you very much for your time today for having me on here it's, it's been a real pleasure for me as well And that was Crazy Cujo, Jacob Lyons. Thank you very much for joining us on The Passive Hang. Really enjoyed all his insights that he shared there. This is a man who's had many, many, many years of diverse physical practice. And I think there's a lot to learn from this conversation. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Remember, once again, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out and send me a message. You can reach me on thepassivehang.com or you can jump on Instagram and find me at P. that's at P-H-A-O-N-P, and just shoot me a direct message. I'd love to hear from you. All right, guys, that's all for today. I'll see you, as always, in the next episode.